Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Focus on Albany. I'm Cynthia Pooler, and my guest today is Jack Williams, and this is a highlight on the state government. So, Zach, it seems like the uh, bail reform thing was the hot topic for the week, so can you tell us a little bit about what went on? Well, the ongoing controversies about the criminal justice reforms, including new limits on cash bail and changes to discovery laws. That is how the time that a prosecutor prosecutors have to turn over evidence to defense attorneys. Now it's been raging for some time ever since the laws went into effect on January 1st. But I think this week we saw a, a few new things. Um, some of it I might uh, give myself a little bit of credit for. We had an article that came out Monday that found that this Facebook group called Repeal Bail Reform that was started by the Washington County Sheriff, you know, had grown so much in the last couple of weeks to over 165,000 members. And among those people are some political extremists, including this group that's affiliated with the three percenters. They're kind of a an ultra Second Amendment group, if you will, as well as mm-hmm. uh, having some tendencies uh, for anti-government uh, advocacy and you know they were really actively recruiting for events of their own opposing bail reform from within this group you know republicans um in the state assembly and the state party and in the state senate as well have you know participated in these discussions and seem to be turning a blind eye to some of the more extreme elements within their midst so that article came out, and we also saw plenty of rallies, both from the Republicans who rallied on the million-dollar staircase in the state capitol with members of the law enforcement community. And then later on, liberal lawmakers had a little bit of a rally of their own, you know, really reiterating and doubling down on their claims that a lot of this opposition to bail reform kind of comes from a, you know, a um, bad place that people aren't really, you know, giving enough credit to the intent of the laws to prevent, you know, uh, racial and economic inequities from determining who is and who is not held pretrial. So basically, can you give us a little overview of exactly what bail reform is and why it's such a hot topic? Well, bail for centuries really has been used to, you know, make sure that criminal defendants show up for their court dates. You know, the idea being that if, you know, I got to put up $100, $1,000, a million dollars in some very high profile cases, you know, I'll be more inclined to show up for my court date rather than just simply ignoring it. You know, people can be held pretrial, you know, in some circumstances, but in New York, under the criminal justice reforms that passed last year under the budget, the idea of dangerousness, um, this idea that judges could determine who presents a danger to public safety, was not included among the options that judges now have to determine you know, whether or not people will be released pretrial. The reforms actually you know, um, mandate that a judge has to turn to the least lenient um, form of pretrial um, 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 release. So that could be electronic uh, monitoring. That could be releasing people on their own reconnaissance. And for a lot of violent uh, misdemeanors and felonies, there still is that option of cash bail. So whenever we hear about um, the criminal justice reforms, it's important to remember that these new limits on cash bail 
are just limits. Bail is still around for crimes like armed robbery, murder, and the like. Mm-hmm. So, in terms um, of the discovery reforms, uh, just to throw that in there as well, because it's also been very okay. controversial. New York, um, up until last year, was one of just a few states that did not require prosecutors to turn over the evidence they got against the defendant before a trial begins. They actually only had to give it over once a trial began. Now they have 15 days to turn over the evidence from the day of arraignment. So from your perspective, why do you think bail reform is so controversial? Well, I think, you know, one reason why it's so controversial is because it's so easy to explain in some ways, or at least to characterize. You know, the Republicans have been hammering the Democrats pretty hard on this, um, you know, not least because, you know, this idea that criminal defendants are being released pretrial and then some of them go on to commit additional offenses is, you know, really easy to, you know, uh, stir up some, you know, outrage among members of the public. Nobody wants to see, you know, criminals unimpeded in their activities. The truth is a little bit more complicated than that, but Republicans have really seized upon this issue as something that is easy to explain to voters and something that they think will help them regain some of those losses in the legislature that they suffered in 2018 when Democrats took over the state Senate. A little bit easier to explain than Medicaid funding, that's for sure. Okay. So um, there's a couple of other things that I ran across this week. Um, Hiring Montserrat, uh, the the senator who was shamed at a New York State Senate, he's coming back and he wants to run as an assemblyman. What's your feelings about that? Well, it's an interesting test in political redemption, if you will. You know, Montserrat, um, some years ago, a little over five years ago, I believe, if I remember right, you know, was a state senator from Queens. And then he actually had been, um, you know, charged with um, slashing his girlfriend in the face with a shard of glass during a uh, Mm -hmm. domestic dispute. Now, later on, she dropped the charges, but there was video of him dragging her out of a building, and that did not look good. The state Senate, in fact, actually voted to expel him from the chamber, which is kind of the legislative equivalent of being impeached and removed from office. Now, Montserrat later actually served two years in prison on federal uh, fraud charges for embezzling money that was supposed to go to this nonprofit. He served his time, and once he got out, he actually started uh, trying to find, uh, you know, to stage a political comeback. He lost a couple races here and there, but in 2018, he actually won election as a as a um, district leader in Queens, you know, these are the members of the state party who are kind of responsible for keeping an eye on the local level within districts across the state. He won that mm-hmm. race, and now he's going after uh, one of the top Democrats in the state assembly, um, Jeffrey, Jeffrey and o- Aubrey. He's pretty close with Speaker Hasty. So, you know, we'll see how, um, you know, things shake out. What's really interesting about it, though, is just how silent some of the other Democrats in Queens have been, you know, um, State Senator Jessica Ramos, for example, who's known for being pretty outspoken, has been uh, notably muted on the topic of Montserrat, who's, you know, pretty popular with a lot of people in Queens. So, you know, we'll see what happens. I actually got a chance to speak with Aubrey a few days ago. You know, he basically said that if Montserrat's looking for some redemption, 
he should look for it somewhere else than running for the state assembly in 2020. His his amigo at that point was when he was in the Senate was Pedro Espada, and Pedro Espada was beaten by Gustavo Rivera. What's Pedro Espada up to these days? Oh, your guess is as good as mine. He too um, had some run-ins with the criminal justice system, and you know, I guess if there's any silver lining for the story of of Montserrat is that, you know, despite everything that's happened to him, the federal charges, the domestic violence accusations, and his key role in the uh, Senate coup back in 2009 that actually um, threw control of the chamber to the Republicans and led to utter confusion in the legislature for a whole month. Nobody knew who was in charge. You know, despite all of that, Montserrat is not the number one most despised person in the recent history of the uh, Democratic Senate conference. I think that distinction is going to have to go to Pedro Espada. Wow. So the other the other thing I, I saw this week, and I thought it was very interesting, actually I saw it last week, was the effort to unionize the workers in the legislative office building. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, let me just throw in one quick thing about Montserrat. Okay. That, um, actually, okay. two things. One of them was, um, you know, Aubrey made sure to mention to me that that if Montserrat wants to run for any office, he should pay in full all the restitution that he still owes to the state for that uh, money that he was convicted of embezzling. The second thing is the legislation that's actually before um, both chambers now. I believe it's sponsored by um, Todd Kaminsky from Long Island and um, 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 Assemblywoman uh, um, Catalina Cruz of Queens. You know, would actually bar any candidate from serving in the state legislature for 10 years post-conviction. Wow. In terms of unionizing um, state lawmakers, that's a pretty interesting thing. You know, there's been a lot of efforts here in New York City to unionize um, staff for the city council. The um, They actually had, um, you know, a petition, got enough people to support it. It appears that city council speaker Corey Johnson is on board. They've actually actively been seeking, you know, um, legislative approval and affiliations with, uh, you know, a much larger union. It seems like everything is, uh, you know, full speed ahead on that effort. And following that, um, Assemblyman Dan Quartz of Manhattan thought that it would be a good idea to give state legislative staffers uh, a chance of their own. There hasn't been a vocal, high-profile public movement for that yet. But it appears that at least there's some movement on the legislative front to, you know, to move this bill that court has proposed. The only thing that must be considered is the same issue that cropped up in the city council. You know, should elected officials be able to to fire and hire at will, you know, their the employees that work for them? You know, if you think about it, it could get a little bit murky in terms of, you know, if you're a, an assembly person, a senator, and you've got staff that you don't have confidence in, you know, assuming that's for virtuous and legitimate reasons, you know, shouldn't you be able to fire them? Some might say yes, Mm. but then again, legislative staffers, they work long hours. A lot of it is kind of, you know, stuff that they got to do, even though they're legally, you know, not required to do it. You know, a lot of them got to do volunteer work for their, um, you know, their, um, um, elected officials re-election campaign and you know it's not so easy to refuse to volunteer for someone's campaign when you work for that same person you know 
whether or not any form of retribution has been explicitly mentioned. So I think this will be a really interesting issue. And, you know, we'll see what happens in New York City with the city council staff, as well as with the legislative staff. But I think it goes without saying that this really could be an example for other efforts across the country, no matter what happens. So do you think there'll be an on-time budget? Well, you know, Governor Cuomo has really wrapped up a lot of his uh, political ego, if you will, on always making sure that the budget more or less meets that April 1st uh, deadline. You know, sometimes I think it's done over a few minutes, maybe a few hours. But, you know, so far, so good. There's been no reason to think that it won't, you know, that lawmakers in Cuomo won't meet that April 1st deadline. Things got a little tricky down the stretch last year. It did stretch a little bit past midnight. But I think the, you know, the real big issue is on the spending front, um, less than, you know, that um, Democrats or in the uh, Assembly or State Senate are somehow going to hold up the budget. That's not to say there's not at least one lawmaker who might be willing to miss that deadline. State Senator Monica Martinez, who's got a proposal to eliminate cash bail, but give judges the discretion to determine all, you know, decisions with pretrial confinement, has already said that she will not vote for a budget unless it includes changes, whether they're hers or others, to the criminal justice reform. So we're kind of going full circle in this conversation here today. You know, well, I haven't seen any other lawmakers join Martinez in that pledge, but, you know, that's just one little, uh, you know, thing that's um, trying to muck up the gears a little bit. We'll see if other lawmakers join her, depending on, you know, whether or not Democrats are able to resolve their outstanding differences on bail reform and discovery in the upcoming weeks. So, um, you know, for people all over the state who really have no idea what um, the sessions are like and what goes on up here in, in Albany, so from the from the state of the state message until April 1st, everything and everybody concentrates on the budget and other things are put by the wayside until the budget, would you say? Is that correct? Well, the budget's the name of the game for the legislative session. From basically the beginning of the year when the governor gives his state of the state, and usually his budget address also on the same day, although this year was a little bit different. And then you have budget hearings where lawmakers hear from local officials, activists, um, state officials, to hear their thoughts on issues like transportation, criminal justice issues, education, biggie right there. And then what happens is the governor has what's called the 30-day amendment. Those are kind of refinements to his budget that he puts forward. Later on, as we get into March, the lawmakers in both houses come up with what's called their one-house budget. That's what the official position of the uh, state assembly majority and the state senate majority. And then from there, it really comes down to the negotiations among the assembly speaker, the majority leader, and the governor, the so-called three people in a room. So that's kind of the basic outline of the process. You know, last year we saw that, you know, Democrats in both chambers really combined forces and, and worked with the governor to get all sorts of stuff through the legislature before the budget passed. You know, everything from election reforms to um, the Reproductive Health Act, which basically codified Roe v. Wade in state law, 
um, the DREAM Act, so many things in this first year of one-party rule in Albany. This time around in 2020, Democrats haven't quite made as big of a show to demonstrate their unity by passing so many high-profile bills, one after another in the first weeks of the session. So while they still Mm -hmm. are passing bills in the Senate and the Assembly, you know, the big action is really in the budget process, as it traditionally is in the first couple months leading up to that April 1st budget deadline. So the session is going to be a little shorter than in years past. From April 1st until the end of session, the all the lawmakers, you know, it seems like they cram everything in on the last few days. Is that is that the correct assumption on my part? Well, you know, think back to high school uh, or college or maybe even the fifth grade. You know, you got your homework. You know it's been uh, assigned for months and months. But it's pretty tough to, uh, you know, to avoid holding off until the you know the night it's due, and that then you start studying hard, writing fast, calling your friends for help. You know that's kind of how the state legislature traditionally works up in Albany. You know they they uh, hold off on making big decisions, and then the pressure and the you know everything it really all comes together on that last day when they make what's called the big ugly. That's an omnibus bill where they'll take all sorts of proposals, whether it's education spending, the state budget, um, proposals for you know criminal justice reforms, as we saw last year, and wrap it up in one big tidy pass- package where lawmakers basically get you know a chance to vote yes or vote no. And if they vote yes, then they can say, well, I wasn't voting for criminal justice reforms. I was voting to fund schools and to keep the government running. Or they can vote no and say, you know, I can't do this. I oppose X, Y, and Z. So that's, you know, really how it all works. And I think the best way to understand the underlying psychology of it is really just to think to uh, all those homework assignments that I'm sure you and I, and definitely myself in, in my younger years, you know, would put off until the day before they're due. <laughs> So, you know, in in uh, the last few minutes of our conversation, I want to get off course a little bit and talk about the national the national scene for uh, for a bit. Um it seems as though the Democrats are in disarray and there's more and more talk about Mike Bloomberg. And Mike Bloomberg is pouring millions of dollars into ads across the country. Mike Bloomberg is a Republican who's running as a Democrat, and if he wins, if he wins the nomination, and if Donald Trump runs for re-election, Bloomberg is a Republican running as a Democrat, and. And Trump is a Democrat from New York running as a Republican. I think it's so crazy. How do you see things shaking out? Well, I mean, you know, look at all the stuff that was happening this week. On, um, you know, we had the the um, vote on Wednesday in the Senate to acquit Donald Trump, which include all the uproar surrounding uh, Senator Mitt Romney, the 2012 nominee for. President from the Republican Party who actually voted to acquit, or not to acquit, to convict uh, uh, Donald Trump. You know, the first senator right. ever in U.S. history to vote to convict a 
a president of his own party. Yes, that mm-hmm. would deals with the wrong party line votes, but I think that just shows you how you know divisive things are. You know, we saw that the the night before with the State of the Union, where you know you have some people calling it the, the best address they've ever seen. And then you got Nancy Pelosi, you know, tearing up the copy before making a show on national television and plenty of other Democrats saying, you know, the the rhetoric and the misinformation that that Trump had in that speech is, you know, alarming for the future of our democracy. And then I can't even remember what was on Monday, but it was such a biggie. I'm I'm struggling to remember, but it was such a um, there was something else. Gosh. (laughs) <laughs> it's been a heck of a week. So, oh, it's Iowa caucuses. Sorry, I apologize. You know, we didn't right. even get to find out after months and months, a whole year of lead up. We didn't even get to find out who won right. it until um, yesterday, basically. And it's kind of a tie. It depends how you, you know, count the votes. Uh, Buttigieg or Bernie Sanders, you know, both did well. This upcoming week, we got New Hampshire. I think if there's one thing we know in the age of Trump. It's that, you know, you think of one thing one week and then you forget about it the next because there's just so much going on. Um, You know, in terms of Bloomberg, he's been pouring money. He's been trying, you know, he knew he couldn't compete in these early states because he got into the campaign so late. So he's just been spending more than $200 million already to compete in the Super Tuesday states like California. Um, So, you know, he's going to make his stand in about a month. We'll see if the massive amount of television, radio, internet ads, you know, are going to translate into actual victory. The mm-hmm. the big irony of all of this, of course, is that, you know, Republicans and Democrats see this as, you know, such a stark choice between their respective visions for the country. Yet really the decision is between two New York City billionaires who have right. very different views on some very important policy ideas are at their core two white men who have, um, you know, his, deep ties to the business community here in New York. And also, disturbingly enough, some very troubling history with their, you know, treatment of women. In Bloomberg's case, it's mostly, it's, um, you know, comments about women and the atmosphere he fostered in his own company with Trump. There's been much more serious allegations of actual sexual assault and the like. We'll see mm-hmm. if voters take, keep that in mind, you know, in November. But I think it's going to be a very, very, um, should I say, um, busy political season in the presidential election. You know, I'm sure if we thought 2016 was contested, it's going to be nothing compared to what's coming up in the months ahead. You know, the reason I brought that up is in 2016, there were two New Yorkers that ran on the top of the ticket. And if indications are correct now, there might be, well, Trump moved down to Florida, but basically I think of him as a New Yorker. There will be two New Yorkers at the top of the ticket again. So... Does the rest of the country count? Well, you know, that's that's a really interesting question. You know, they're both from New York. Well, Bloomberg's originally from Boston, but he was the mayor here. And I think the Queen's accent will never betray where uh, Donald Trump really thinks home is. You know, he still has Trump Tower, and he'll still uh, be a presence Mm -hmm. in the city for a long time to come. In terms of what it means for the rest of the country, 
you know, uh, I don't think people, especially in rural America, have had any trouble looking past, you know, the Queen's accent and the big city ways of Donald Trump to, you know, put, make him their hero. You know, he's out, he's, um, you know, supported the the NRA's position on the Second Amendment, a big deal for a lot of people in rural America. He's pleased the business community with his, you know, the tax cut that the Republicans passed a couple of years back. On the flip side, the Democrats, you know, they got the cities. You know, even in Texas, you know, you're, you know, you can't go to Austin or San Antonio and not see a lot of, you know, Democrats, even if the Democrats um, can't, you know, might not be able to win Texas itself. Likewise, in California, there's a lot of places that Trump is popular. You know, you look at the maps from 2016, you see a sea of red, but you got to keep in mind that those places where all the blue is are the major cities, and that's where Democrats, you know, are getting just as many people to vote in terms of the popular vote, several million people more. What it's all, of course, going to come down to in a presidential election, though, is that electoral college. So, you know, there was an article, I believe, in Politico just yesterday that, you know, really showed how Trump has completely scrambled the electoral map. You know, we used to talk about Ohio and Florida as like the big swing states. They've moved increasingly in towards the Republicans, but states like Arizona and Texas, one, you know, hardcore Republican states, along with Virginia, a state that Barack Obama flipped and is, you know, both the, all three of those states are moving increasingly towards the Democrats. So, you know, things have changed. And, you know, some of the people, your listeners should keep in mind is that no matter what happens, there's really no turning back to the pre-2016 um, way of doing politics, you know, whether or not Donald Trump wins re-election. So, you know, the name of my show is focused on Albany, and I cover state issues and city and county issues in Albany. What's going on on the national level? Do you think that's taken away from people's attention where they should be uh, looking in their own backyard instead of watching the pundits on TV? What's your opinion? Well, it's pretty hard to ignore Trump. If there's one thing he succeeds at, it's getting attention. I I don't think that in terms of state politics, you know, people's uh, lack of attention is due to Donald Trump. You know, state politics have always, you know, struggled to break through the noise compared to super local politics, city, county, town level, or national politics. You know, there's just not a lot of people around that cover state politics, despite the fact that arguably, you know, what a state legislature does affects people's everyday lives much more than the national or even sometimes the local governments, you know, the state legislatures determine your taxes. They determine a lot about the regional economy and how jobs are made and where money gets invested. And of course they have the purse strings for education. So it behooves anybody to pay more attention to state politics, but that's a problem that has been going on for decades at least, and probably won't change anytime soon, just, you know, because of the the nature of the news business and the fact that, you know, people got to live their lives and they can only pay attention to, you know, as many things as they can. And, you know, it's, it's hard to beat the spectacle of national politics and city and local politics, of course, are, you know, right there in your community. So you tend to come across it in your daily life more than state politics, despite their importance. So we have a minute left, Zach. Um, give yourself your weekly plug. 
let everybody know where you work and what you do. Well, I cover state government for city and state. We're the only print magazine that exclusively covers New York City and New York State politics. You know, your listeners can check us out at cityandstateny.com, and I can use all the Twitter love I can get at at my handle at Zach Reports. That's Zach with an H at Zach Reports. So, uh, you know, thank you very much for you know letting me be on the show. You know, and I always love uh, coming on and discussing all the really important things that are going on in state politics. Thank you, Zach, and I always look forward to talking with you. Uh, so you've been listening to Zach Williams. This is Focus on Albany. So if you like the show, like us on Facebook, follow and follow us on Twitter. Zach, we'll talk next week, and everybody have a wonderful week. We'll talk again. <laughs>